Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I got some kindness, I got compassion, and I got love for all mankind. You better get up on some of that, man. Don't nobody want no shit like that. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, here's a thought experiment. If you could go back in time and meet the guy or girl or woman. Wait, let me start this over. (laughs) Dave, here's a thought experiment. If you could go back in time and meet with the guy or girl or chick or (laughs) bimbo (laughs) and meet with the... And meet with the man or woman who came up with the idea for the ice bucket challenge and somehow stop him or her from doing it, either by either killing them or, or just like <laughs> giving them a pill or however you do it. That's totally up to you. Would you do it? No, but now you gave me an idea for a, a short film where um, somebody goes back in time and dumps an ice bucket on a person who did something annoying, and that, in fact, gives them the idea to do the ice bucket challenge. Oh, so they're doing uh, it. It's, it's like a little the reverse loop. of the Terminator. You're, like, going back <laughs> yeah. in time to... Yeah, maybe somebody already went back in time and stopped them from doing something really annoying for charity by dumping an ice bucket, and all it did was change the idea. <laughs> right. Um, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. That was actually something we wanted to talk about is this ice bucket challenge because it's been, I would say, a fairly dominant meme or whatever. Just like a a third of the things I read about on Facebook and and like on blogs and stuff. Uh, So, yeah, what are your thoughts? I actually went from amused to annoyed very quickly and then back to sort of I'm actually totally okay with it. The reason that I'm totally okay with it is because I sort of just ignore it all in my I mean I've been just not really that that active on on any of the social media stuff but also because at the end of the day it's raising money. Yeah. There's a, but there is a backlash and the, well there's a whole meta conversation about the ice bucket challenge and there are people who are opposed to it on principle grounds. Which is sort of weird, but for those who don't know the Ice Bucket, I don't know why you would listen to a podcast and not know what the Ice Bucket Challenge is, but it is in support of, of ALS. Not, uh, that always sounds weird. I'm against ALS. <laughs> it's in support a of a cure, cure for, for ALS. ALS. Which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. <laughs> which I heard, Which I heard, by the way, somebody saying that Lou Gehrig did not actually have ALS, which is as good a philosophical conundrum as you could have, right? <laughs> so, 
If Lou Gehrig did not have ALS, what is Lou Gehrig's disease? <laughs> is it still ALS? Um, <laughs> yeah, that could start like a whole new movement in philosophy of language. No, and it is a terrible, like just a horrific disease that not only yeah. kills people way too early, but uh, also get you know uh, the, a big part of their life is really hard on them. There's a lot of suffering for them and a lot of suffering from the people who are taking care of them if it's their family. And this, the yeah. couple of things are undeniable. The challenge has raised a ton of money. I don't know what it is right now, but it's somewhere in the I think seven or eight million dollars, if not more. I mean, that's just the last thing that I heard. Uh, one one thing that I want to clear up is it does not cure ALS to dump a bucket. <laughs> this is what I, my, my initial thought was, that, that you dump the bucket on people with ALS. Person with ALS, <laughs> you just dump a nice bucket on them. I saved you, uh, friend. There is no I need saved. to thank me. I'm just doing my part. Uh, pay, pay it forward. <laughs> pay it forward. Now that you're cured of ALS, you can do it. Repugnant. Uh, One star. Yeah, no, I, I don't mean. I am not in any way mocking. I, it is a horrible disease. So, the, from the people who are opposed to it, there's there the, there is there's one camp that just doesn't like the sort of self congratulatory nature of it, right. um, and definitely people are using this to as a way of promoting themselves on social media, um, and so they don't like the idea that you know. You're not just – this is, a, I think, the Kantian strain of the objection is you're not doing it for the – you're not donating the money for the right reasons. You know, although I, I hate everything associated with Kant, I do have – there is something off-putting about the people who make this more about them than about the money. But at the end of the day, they do give the money and they – probably otherwise wouldn't have you know like i i think about this right. I don't, it's like every once in a while you'll go to a store and then they'll just ask you do you want to donate one two no, five dollars to the red cross or whatever you feel like an ass and so i always do unless i'm actively opposed like if it was some sort of like neo-nazi charity i wouldn't right. Like you would probably do that, but I, I, that would, you'd be like, "Oh no, I'm already giving them." Like, but uh, unless I'm opposed to it in any way, I, I'll do it. And part of the reason I'm doing it is you don't want to seem like I you don't, you don't want to seem like a, a cheap bastard. Like I'm for, right? I'm all pro I'm pro cancer right. for kids. And, but right? sometimes it's yeah. definitely not something that I would have given money to, or, and it's low on my priority list. Of what I think right. should get charity. At the same time, you probably you'll probably always give to the PetSmart. Oh, like when like, every like, single time them. I go to PetSmart. And meanwhile, there's like starving kids, and you're like, "Fuck the kids!" Like, I, I actually <laughs> believe that, though. So, yeah. I know that's where it all just works together in harmony. But there is an interesting case of, of and this is what I resent about it. They're they are putting you on the spot in a way that makes it seem like they're questioning your character. And so I do feel like an asshole if I say no, and that's why I sort of pre-commit to saying no. I actually so you don't do it. Who would practice saying no? No, I just I just don't. Oh, do see, it. I, I mean, always do it. We have the exact yeah, opposite. I, what's funny is every once in a while I hear people uh, say when they say no, they'll say, you know, I already donate to whatever. whatever. It's like you know, dude, you don't have to. <laughs> You don't owe the cashier any explanation for why you're right. not doing it. 
I, like I think it's it's uncomfortable, and I I I do kind of resent that they're. Uh, Paul Bloom and I had this conversation once. He, he we both had the strong intuition that I would almost pay a dollar more on my grocery bill to go to a line that didn't have to be that. <laughs> right, like to fill. There's like the no no requests charity right. lane, and like they just charge me more. Right. Like I, it, and they get, fact, the they, they get the money. They just get the money. So we—it's interesting. We have a different take on this. So while I definitely question my motives when I do it, part of it is I don't want to mm-hmm. seem like I'm a cheap person that doesn't care about like children starving or you know. In, at the end of the day, like I think it's a good thing that they did it. Like I think like that's great. So now the Red Cross is getting. Money from me that they wouldn't have gotten because that's not one of the charities that I give to. It's not like at the end of the year where we give uh, the money that we're going to give to various organizations. I go back and I remember all the different times that I gave a dollar or two dollars or whatever to such and such charity, and I deduct that from what what we're going to give right now. I mean, that's just money that goes to the charity that they would never have gotten from me, right. and it didn't take away from any other charity either so that's like the so all this is a way of saying that the consequentialist case against this i think is crazy because people say well now that you've given ten dollars to als you're gonna give ten dollars less to you know stopping malaria and i haven't heard anybody make that argument but but again i have but that's that's a ridiculous argument right yeah, and I don't think it, it's just probably just way empirically wrong as a consequence. But I did read a, like a big long rant about that, about how look, look, ALS is a terrible disease, but there's so many other diseases that your money can do much more good for, and it's like, yeah, but it's not going to do much more good for it than what I would actually spend that money on, which is... It's weird. I have a, such a conflicting, like, incoherent set of intuitions or beliefs here because I am totally okay with them, with charities using, the, you know, like the Ice Bucket Challenge, independent of the motives of the people giving. Like, so I, I didn't give a rat's ass if, like, somebody was doing it to promote themselves on social media because that ends up... It ends up raising money, and I don't care about their motives. Like because at the end of the day, it's doing good for charity. So you know, if you have a worthy cause, and half of the people are donating because they're assholes, and half because they're altruists, like it's it's not doesn't if matter. You have ALS. On the you other don't hand, really care. And this, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. But so so while I I am okay with these methods in a consequential sense, I when it comes to my own donations, I feel very strongly that my that, that I don't like my motives being mixed. Like I don't I I want to donate because I care about the cause and because I am you know feeling as if I I ought to and not because of social pressure or, or peer pressure or social media or self promotion. I think that's what is at the heart of my intuition about saying no at the grocery line. Like I don't even sometimes I try my best not to even listen to what charity they were asking. <laughs> so I don't feel <laughs> Well, but um, I mean, you yeah. are, as I believe I've mentioned, uh, Kantian. I mean, you are just <laughs> through and through to your core. We, we're going to have to have it on all out about this because I don't even speak German. And I think you have to know German in order to even understand what you're I, I don't know how much that helps, actually. I, I guess I don't really have that, you know, because my motives... Always, they're always pure. <laughs> your, your motives, your motives no, are always pure. I mean, like, they're, I would say, probably pure very seldom. But 
like I just want at the end of the day for me to have done what I think is the right thing. And if this is why I don't mind that. Uh, do you want to add one or two dollars to the thing? Because I know that I probably don't give as much as I should, and this is a way of getting me to do what I I'm not doing enough. So right, yeah. no, you're right, you're right. I actually think that you've you've convinced me. <laughs> yeah, it's better. Might as well just do it. It's you know, sort of. I instituted a rule to avoid the decision every time because that's what is uncomfortable for me. Like, uh, right. you know, it's like every single time you're like, wait, do I? Do I want to get? I should just not pay attention to the charity and just right. That you could make that decision too, which is pretty much the decision right. I've made because they never actually do. It's not like they say, uh, you know, two extra dollars to the KKK. You know, like it's not yeah, like right, exactly. they would pick a different name. That... Yeah, but we're trying. We're trying to raise awareness for these poor epileptic dogs. My point is, if you were to say record a song that was anti-AIDS, for example then you'd end up alienating all those people that are pro-AIDS. How many people do you know who are pro-AIDS? No one's pro-AIDS. Greg, just a quick question, please. Greg, are you pro or anti-AIDS? Anti. Speaking of which, this has some relevance for our podcast. Uh, We recently said on the podcast that we would donate a portion of our proceeds to kip the knowledge is power program that i think a really amazing program that serves children who live in impoverished communities they have no way of getting a good public education and this gives them a way of doing that and kip has been amazingly successful for 20 years it was started by two people who first did teach for america and then broadened it into a whole system but i was thinking about the you know when all the objections came up against the ice bucket challenge i was thinking is it is there something a little off putting about the fact that anytime you now donate to us you are donating to a charity that you might not that might not be at the top or anywhere near the top of your priority list you know we definitely picked one that we thought every a lot of people could get behind but maybe just the general principle of look I, i i can choose to to donate to you but now i'm being forced to donate to something that you know, I, I doubt anybody's right. act- actively opposed to it, although it does play a little bit into that charter versus uh, non-charter public education yeah. debate. But, I, you know, I think it might be the case. And I, what I was saying to you is I, I don't even think that it that, that even if people don't don't really have any opposition or or sort of feelings for or against it, that it is that that feeling of just <clears throat> sort of it's like a, a rider on a bill like, wait. So now I'm doing two things. I'm choosing to donate to Very Bad Wizards and I am endorsing or donating yeah. to a charity. And I think that just alone might might sort of, you know, people might just want to donate to us and not even worry about it. Well, let, let, let me let me let me throw this out there. If you have an objection to this, uh let us know one way or the other on Facebook, mm-hmm. on um on on Twitter or over email. And I'm leaning toward this is this is just a matter of creative accounting, but I you know I am more than happy to just say that we will donate to charities at the end of the year um, and not 
have it mixed up, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, let's go into this right now. I mean, we do, we do uh, this isn't all just for us to donate to our favorite charities. We do a ton of right. work for this, and we spend money on equipment, and we spend money on the website that hosts the podcast, and uh, we really do appreciate your donations as well as your uh, purchasing on Amazon, which has picked up recently, and, and that's been great. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of people, and that's that's great, and we count that. As, as, as our donations and that and that's just that's been awesome uh so please keep doing it and i'm really in awe of the people who remember to do this okay you want to take a quick break, break, break? shit to very bad wizards um we're now going to continue our discussion on thought experiments and thought experiments i had been moving up in terms of the ambition of these thought experiments what are they trying to do or what are they trying to establish and i thought i just a quick aside if uh, if you've listened this far um you probably already know that we did a part one on this so listen to that episode first but i also just wanted to point out that we put links to like the wikipedia articles or in some cases some other links to to i I pretty much every thought experiment that we discussed if you want to read up on it go to verybadwizards.com and then to the episodes and we we usually have show notes with links and all of this um, the, the the last kind of or the last kind of category that we talked about in part one was when you're really trying to establish or provide serious support for a broad metaphysical position, and this brought us into the discussion of zombies and and um, or ethical, yeah, or, or ethical position. But now we'll talk about a couple more of those, and some of our listeners have. Rec- requested that we talk about these and they're absolutely right because they're they're fairly important within philosophy and in the case of the original position i think just one of those thought experiments that has broken through on every level in political theory um in the general public and the general media the chinese room thought experiment though which i think we should let's talk about first is you know what? These all are sounding so sexual to me for the some Chinese reason. room. <laughs> the Chinese room? The original position. <laughs> what is I just, the original <laughs> position? I don't know. I think it's when your legs are up and... Uh, your legs know. are up? 
Uh, I don't but know. The chi- and the Chinese room? If you want to go into <laughs> no, that. that's not sexual. The experience, the experience machine, come on. You yeah, got to give I that. totally give you the experience <laughs> machine. Zombies, definitely. It's like the name of a vibrator. You know that Mary, the color scientist, hot, is really hot. Galileo's balls. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not a big Galileo's stretch balls. right there. This, yeah. this is... <laughs> So this is also trying to establish – I mean there's, there's sort of a, I guess a, a, a more ambitious and a less ambitious thing that it's trying to challenge. But both are, pre- are, are, are trying to establish. But both are pretty ambitious. Yeah, but, the, uh, but, the Chinese, but the Chinese room originally was trying to provide a clear exception. I, I mean a clear sort of, of intuitive falsifying of a – Well, but of a of – a, like a whole theory of the mind, the computational theory of the mind. It was yeah. – it was designed to show, right, that, the, that, the, that even if a computer could answer the Turing test, could pass the Turing test, and if you don't right. know what the Turing test is, I guess we should – say what the Turing test is. It, it it relates to what the Chinese room is all about. You want to say what the Turing test is? Yeah, I mean, it's simply it, it's simply whether or not a computer can fool you into thinking that it is human. I mean, and I, I, I don't think we have time to get into the various ways in which the Turing test is right. interpreted and the contest or whatever. But but uh, there one way of thinking about it is if a it is this sort of which I, I don't know that Turing ever thought this, but but if if a computer can fool you into thinking it's human, then it must have the the it must has a mind, it have. must have understanding. Yeah, and the Chinese right. room thought experiment is a way of trying to show that no, even if a computer can pass the Turing test, it's not it doesn't really it's not really thinking. It's not it doesn't really have understanding. It doesn't really have consciousness. But I do want to point out that while I still think that the Chinese room is being a thought experiment that's an attempt at at refuting a, a, a view, and that view happens happens to be a grand theoretical view of the mind. But but the Chinese room experiment is a is not meant to build up its own grand. Theory. That's true. That's fair. Yeah. No, it doesn't belong. But, in this but let's category, talk about it nonetheless. So here's the summary of it, um, and this is by the philosopher John Searle at Berkeley. He says, imagine a native English speaker who knows no Chinese locked in a room full of boxes of Chinese symbols, a database, together with a book of instructions for manipulating the symbols, uh, the program. Imagine that people outside the room send in other Chinese symbols, which unknown to the person in the room are questions in Chinese, the input. And imagine that by following the instructions in the program, the man in the room is able to pass out Chinese symbols, which are correct answers to the questions, the output. The program enables the person in the room to pass the Turing test for understanding Chinese, but he does not understand a word of Chinese. And then it says, Searle goes on to say, the point of the argument is this, if the man in the room does not understand Chinese on the basis of implementing the appropriate program for understanding Chinese, then neither does any other digital computer solely on that basis because no computer, qua computer, has anything the man does not have. Right. 
And this was limited, you know, there is, I don't think that it would be fair to say that Chalmers doesn't think some sure. sort of computation is going on in the mind. I mean, Searle is, thinks that some computation is going on in the mind or that the, that the brain is in some sense, uh, in some description of machine, a machine, but just not a digital machine. Right. It's, right? it's it, not an, it can't is, be, it's, it's, it's designed, you're absolutely right. It's designed to uh, refute a certain uh, way of understanding the mind, uh, which is a computational way, an algorithmic way of understanding the mind right. that was big and and, and I guess functionalism yeah. too. I mean, yeah. But the but the the general idea is that you could have this computer that I, you know, and, which is interesting because in the context of a movie that I just saw on a plane called Her, the Her, I hadn't, I hadn't seen Her yet. Have you seen Her? Mm-hmm. The and yeah. if the, if you buy the, the the conclusion of this argument, there's no real romance that's going on between Scarlett right. Johansson, the voice, the of, the voice computer, of the computer, yeah. and uh, and Joaquin Phoenix, right? Because that she she's saying all these things, and she knows, but but those, but there's no there's no feeling, there's no understanding, there's no uh, it she, it's just like that guy in the room who's putting out characters that he doesn't understand on the basis of some sort of algorithm or yeah, I mean, and obviously the maker of her. Uh, Spike Jones stacks the deck in favor of you. Sort everybody in that world just assumes that these these artificial intelligences are are <laughs> a, a meet some criteria for. If them. anybody would uh, have in his movie, like somebody bring up the Chinese room thought experiment, it might be him. Right. It just needed Charlie Kaufman yeah. to write the screenplay. Okay, so I actually think that I one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the Chinese room experiment is because I. I think, and now obviously, like volumes and volumes have been written on whether this succeeds or fails, and so I, I don't want to have the hubris of saying like I I understand it better than all of the people who have actually devoted. Unlike the zombie case, where you were very happy to to make that claim, call it mass <laughs> yeah. hysteria. Um, uh, all right, well then I'll just stick to my claims like like a philosopher would, and say that I, I think that this is hand waving on the part of Searle in the sense that. This is a thought experiment that is, uh, I think, of the worst kind, one that doesn't provide much by way of new argument. It doesn't point out something that was previously unknown or something incoherent. All it's doing is reifying that original intuition. That is, people, it seems weird that a computer could think, and Searle turned it into an example. Like, isn't this weird? And yeah, no, computers can't think. So the conclusion is only driven by the initial reaction that everybody would have anyway. So that is, I, I think that if you're convinced that a computer could think, this thought experiment would do nothing. And if you're already convinced that, it, you know, it's whatever your intuition is or whatever your belief already is, this theory is just, it, it's all it is is reification. So why do you think that's all it is? Because all he's done is describe a machine in detail. And then conclude that because your intuition, if it is the case that your intuition uh, believes that this machine is not capable of understanding, then therefore you've 
he's provided some sort of evidence with his thought experiment. To be clear, you're not claiming that the man himself understands Chinese when he's giving out the correct answers to these questions that passes the Turing test, right? You're I, saying no, that, no, I'm not taking – yeah, I'm not taking a, a stand on whether it is in fact – um, whether in fact machines can think or not. No, no, no. What no, I'm no. saying but, is, but, but or whether you the man agree, can think or, right, or that understand. that man doesn't understand Chinese. Let's let's set aside what I actually think about that man for a second, because no, the point that I'm trying to make is that the reasons that people have for or the intuitions that they have for believing that a machine can think or believing that a machine cannot think or understand are not in any way changed by this example this this example doesn't all it does is point out what you know it's just another way of asking the question can machines think so i think that if you are a proponent of say strong ai as they used to call it that um that this is not compelling at all because you and and if you are not a proponent if you actually do share the intuition the machines can't think then this is like yeah see but all it's doing is saying it is saying it again. All right. I'm going to do probably the most annoying thing that philosophers do in Q&A sessions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do right now. Pull out your dick. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely annoying, but it's not as annoying as this. It's when you say, here's how I thought you were going to defend that claim right. that you were going that you just made. Because people have made... Or people have made arguments that have the same conclusion that you have... But the way they got there is by saying, look, the way he's making his claim is by your intuition that the man doesn't uh, understand Chinese, which is true. The man doesn't understand Chinese. Critics will say that the man doesn't understand Chinese, but the system understands Chinese. The system, which includes all the boxes and all the – the man is just one part of that system. Right. The man is like the the cog. Uh, Or just a a, a simple part of the system, an important part, a crucial, a necessary part, but not the whole system. So the reason they argue that this is begging the question in the way that they say is your intuition is that if the man doesn't understand it, well, then that obviously then the system doesn't understand it because that's just a bunch of boxes and, and rules. But the whole point of the computation of theory of mind is you have these rules and you have a way of implementing the rules, which is the man. Then you can make a mind with genuine understanding. But, but the, whole, the, 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 the intuitive force of the thought experiment draws from you agreeing only that the man doesn't have uh, – Right, and then ask yeah. you to conclude. But the something. computational theory of the mind doesn't just doesn't say that every part of the system has understanding. It says that the system as a whole. That's why it's so begging what, the question. Like I think that's a more like a better way of arguing for what you're see, saying. I agree with that, right? I, but I think that take two take two people, um, just lay people, right? Folk, as you guys call them. One has an intuition that, of course, machines soon will be capable of of understanding and the other one that no no they'll never be capable of understanding i think that that the way in that many thought experiments work is if you if if you can if you describe the thought experiment correctly you should have people who say ah you're right 
right? Like, or you should say like, oh, I, I realize that that's making a point that I hadn't thought or like, oh, that's, that is the implication of what I'm saying. The computer, I think this is just all it's getting people to do is say, see, they can't think versus the other person says, no, there's something wrong about that. Like, I, this doesn't compel me to, to see anything new about about here's my only defense and i have no particular i have no dog in this fight with uh, the chinese room yeah, nor do I. or the computational theory of mind or the this just happens not to be my hobby horse but the way the chinese room thought experiment contributed to my way of understanding the problem is this i was completely agnostic you know, I, I probably was in the camp of, yeah, computational, that sounds that sounds like maybe one way that we could generate conscious experiences. I don't know if that's the way, but yeah, that could work. Why not? The, the Chinese room thought experiment does do a good job of showing you, wait a minute, it's not as easy as you think, you know, or maybe it does. I don't know. Like it at least highlights certain problems, but only, I think only for the class of people that are, are are really agnostic about this issue in the first place. They haven't taken a definite stance one way or the other, and they don't really care. Like, right. Yeah. I, so it sounds like what we're saying is, well, look, it serves to highlight something because it's, a, it's an interesting example, and it points to... Like, it could be one of the, the category of, oh, here's an interesting problem, and here's why it's a problem. If you don't think it's a problem, then I'm going to explain to you why it might be. Right. I mean, so in that sense, it's like, um, take somebody who doesn't know much about science at all. Say, like, somebody from, like, earlier on in history or somebody who's just not... So you say, you know, what's weird is when you're in an airplane and you jump, why don't you hit the back of the airplane at 300 miles an hour? Like, right. you know, and... And so, sure, like that might get people thinking. Or well, how can you play right? tennis so, on a boat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it might get people thinking, but I don't think it's a particularly strong thought experiment. It's just some some pe something pedagogically sort of interesting in which it forces people to think about it. Like I want to say, maybe give an example of what I mean by uh, the good thought experiments that might actually get people to change their mind or or in a good way think about their position. So so take again, like lay by lay, I mean non philosophers who think that they're consequentialist um or they think that they're utilitarian and then you give them one of these like the organ donor example that actually makes them question whether or not they mean what they mean like right. when you say like okay so if you really think that it does it's only right in as much as it improves welfare like here's this example and then they say well okay well no no in that case and they have to really think about why their position does not in, entail that you would actually, you yeah. know, sacrifice an innocent person, and and I just I think that the Chinese room isn't offering up that that kind of uh, that kind of argument. Yeah, I, fair yeah. enough. I think, but I agree with you. Like, it's one of the earliest arguments. It's easy to understand, and it's one of the arguments that also got me really interested early on in this whole problem. Of so the other thought experiment that we really meant to get to was uh, the original position by Rawls. As you were saying, Tamler, like this is actually there's two things about it. One is that it seems to it is one of these thought experiments that builds a huge position, right? It builds like what should society look like? What should the distribution of goods look like? What is justice? It's like an ethical theory. It's a social. It's a political theory, and it all boils down to uh, the starting point for Rawls, um, which is this thought experiment. 
the original position and the veil of ignorance. And, uh, and this is a rare case where it's not just a bunch of people arguing against zombies. It's like actually like political, you know, in, deeply influential among political thinkers and even and among all fields. Right. Yeah. Among all fields. It's like, you know, Kohlberg was a Rawlsian and he viewed he viewed the principles of justice, the Rawlsian Kantian sort of Rawlsian view as the ultimate sort of stage six morality. That is what we all ought to get to once you know, once like our cognitive abilities and our perspective taking gets to where it should be, turns out nobody gets to that position. So, okay, I'm going to say as a layperson what I think the original position thought experiment is. So, as I see it, it is Rawls is asking people to imagine that they have absolutely no idea what kind of member of society they will be. And what he means by this is not that like, we don't know anything about society. We're supposed to know a lot about how the world works. We know about how physics works. We know about how econ- economics works. We might even know um, something basic about... I think you're supposed to know really, lot, like, not just basics about psychology, a lot about psychology, human psychology. <laughs> a lot about psychology. What you don't know is who you will be and who you will be here. And I think it's important... So what he's removing, he's basically doing subtraction. He's saying like, okay, you are, you are, it's like an amnesia, right? It's like when people forget who they are, but they remember like who Marilyn Monroe is, right? Like, and what you're supposed to forget in this thought experiment is whether or not you'll be rich or poor, whether you'll be born to, to wealthy, intelligent people, or you'll be born to poor people, or whether you'll be born to dumb people, whether you'll be, you'll be very talented, whether you'll have a good work ethic, all of these things, and I assume whether you'll be lazy or whether you'll be hardworking, all of these things, you're asked to imagine that you have no idea. You're basically going to, it's before you step into society. Once you step in, then you might know. And you, you'll, essentially, you might be anything. You might be the poorest person in society, you might be the richest, you might be the dumbest, you might be the smartest. The only thing I would add to that, because I think this is important, is that you also lack your what he called the conception of the good. You lack any sense of what you'll think is a good life. So, like uh, being okay. like Steven Pinker has has devoted his life to being a highly successful, best-selling author. But I think he said somewhere that he made uh, – he and his wife, Rebecca Goldstein, also a highly successful author and very interesting philosopher, novelist. They decided not to have children. Their conception of the good was to be very successful in their fields, whereas some other people would sacrifice even their – their degree of fame right. and celebrity like a, like to, for just a f- <laughs> that's why i'm not a famous successful author i yeah I exactly explicitly chose no, to me have too. a kid right so, <laughs> we both our our one daughter imagine what i would have been is the only thing that have st- <laughs> stand in the way of us being Stephen Stephen pinker uh, yeah. kids are a great invention because they give you an excuse but they um, really do but yeah okay so is this because rawls thinks that the original position is supposed to infuse you with a notion of good it's supposed to it's supposed to pre- present that extra level of impartiality where you you're not supposed to necessarily favor or what you'll uh, consider okay. meaningful so in some sense you just don't know your values right. you don't know your moral values you don't know the yeah. way. so now so starting from that uh then <laughs> my understanding and we read tambler and I, I i i got lost in this uh but my understanding then is that something oh and so importantly sorry i missed this part 
you're asked, like, what would a rational person under this veil of ignorance, how would they structure society? Yes. What, what okay. among all the various alternatives of a political organization that have been offered, what would you choose? Behind this right. veil so, of ignorance, and that's and, whatever that is. Or and now, what would you choose? What would? Yeah, I mean, because there's no difference between right. you and everybody else, right? Yeah, in right. the veil of so ignorance. That, so this way, this is like it's supposed to put you and me in the same in boat, the same boat. Right? What would we all? Choose? What would human each of us being? individually yeah. choose as the best kind of society that will able enable us to maximize whatever conception of the good that we have? Right. Clothes, bankrolls, and hoes, or like, <laughs> like Biggie would say, um, we don't know. All right, so y- why don't you say what your problem with this veil of ignorance is? Because, uh, like, honestly, it sounds pretty awesome. Like, yeah, we like it would be great to not know. And so, and I, I, when I think about it, I do get the intuition, like, oh yeah, you know, one of the things that, like, if I don't know, like, I would want a society, you know, like if I might be randomly assigned to being the worst person then sure, I want a society that doesn't have like really, really horrible, like, uh, but I'm already, even in saying that, I'm already, you think that there's a problem. Well, right? okay. Yeah, we're not even getting yet to, and maybe this is a good thing because this is yeah. what led us astray. We, we, we've we done this for the last hour and we're only giving you right now. So, we, so we're not even going to get to what Rawls's conclusions are yet. There are two problems, I think, with the, the whole way that this is set up. Number one, I don't think we can imagine what we would want. You're supposed to imagine just what is the best thing that's going to advance your interests in the original position. But you're stripped of too many <laughs> – we don't have enough information to know what kind of society – or organization, because when you strip us of the conce- of our conceptions of the good, and you strip us of our personalities and temperaments, so there might be a risk-averse person might want the sort of Rawlsian maximin. Okay, I want to make sure that if I if I get the lowest, like if the, if if the wheel rolls a certain way. I want to make sure that I'm the best off. Or you might have a more gambling kind of personality where you're like, look, I'm willing to roll the dice. And if I get fucked, I get fucked. But if I get, right. uh, you know, if I get to be uh, one of those like Saudi princes, then it's smooth sailing from that. You know, like so. So, right. so, 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 so I was actually, yeah, I was actually saying to Tamla, like, well, no, 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 this makes sense. Like, you know, like say there's like, let's say a real stripped down version, right? Like say there are three possible uh, statuses that you might have, like rich, middle, and poor. And uh, so I was like, well, yeah, it's obvious to me that if I don't know, like it was a third chance that like I would be willing to do something that, that um, like the maximin where – I, I would say, well, like, let's just make sure the poor isn't completely screwed because I have a 33% chance of being, like, the, the worst off. And, but it is true that some people would be more than happy to say, well, no, like, let's roll the dice, man. Like, let's make the best person the best Let it off, ride. Not even – You know, yeah, like – Let it ride. Like, let's do this. 32. <laughs> 32. 32 red. No whammies. Uh, <laughs> no whammies. No whammies. Uh, no. That's for the older. So, that is dating – both of us. <laughs> uh, so, so my my intuition, which is like, yeah, it's obvious what I would do in this. If you ask me this 
specific question under the veil of ignorance and the, is not obvious. And the question is, to, right, is that – so one danger of the thought experiment is it's like the Chinese room, that whatever you already are is going to – you're, it's going to reinforce. So if you're risk averse, right. then you are going to agree with Rawls. One way of saying it is that like you can't subtract what he's asking you to subtract. And even though you think you're doing it like so right. I was thinking like, no, no, no. Like I am. Uh, Paul Bloom used to have this hilarious thing where we would say, uh, well, I don't know if there's going to be differences between, say, like women and men. And he'd say, no, no, no. Hold on. I am being a woman right now. Yes, yes, I would believe this. Or I am being an Asian American right, right now. Oh, clear. My intuition would be this. You know, it's like well, you can't. You can't imagine you can't strip what it. you're. And and here's so I think so that's like that's a that's a big problem. The deeper version of that problem is because what Rawls is sort of not. It's not. I don't see him as exactly asking like you guys do in your like trolley problems what would you do or what do you think you you should do in this situation he's more asking like what a rational person would do and all people are equally rational and they're supposed to have come up with the same principles and i just don't think (laughs) there's enough left to have a conception of what a rational person is yeah so that that well there's not enough of that whatever that person is there's not enough of that person left to have a basis to choose what principle of justice that's it, it, they want to organize their society. And so it's actually like... So what you're know, saying is like you took away the important bits. You took right? away a necessary component of making that choice in setting up the veil of ignorance. So this is sort of a coherence issue. Right. So, so there are two... So And I... And I it strikes me that actually it's you, this one is the the one that that you really so it's like there are two things like one people can't people can't really think of the disinterested person yeah. but two like it doesn't make sense to have a what it what it means to be right. a disimpartial person uh, when you don't have like, right like the, what you said I can't conceive of being a woman or an Asian person. But there are really women and Asian people that are out there in the world. It's just right. the problem is epistemological. Uh, epistemological For me, the problem, or at least I'm, I have some sympathy with this, that the problem is more metaphysical. Like there isn't this uh, concept of a, a rational person in the uh, – in the original position that has enough information to make a self-interested choice um, behind the veil of ignorance. It's like right. asking my dog what kind of society, you know, like, or it's right. not even like asking my dog because you could ask my dog um, and my dog might bark. <laughs> I don't know. I'll leave my dog out of this episode. Just lick his balls. <laughs> Part of sometimes where way, you can't lick what you don't have. You can't. You don't have balls. <laughs> Uh, well, somebody does. Uh, somebody has my dog's balls. <laughs> Part of sometimes what I disagree I with you is that there true, is by the somebody, <laughs> somebody's walking around with my dog's balls. Well, your dog doesn't. I presume that your dog doesn't have many more. So they're right. They're That's, but that was my point. Uh, I missed that part. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so, so it's not that you're not. I mean, part of what might be driving your objection here is that you think there's no such thing as pure rationality, right? Um, but you're, but, yes. but I don't want, but it's not just that. It's that actually one weird thing that it seems to be, and again, like I don't know shit about this, uh, but it seems to be that one of the things that, that is uh, 
even worse is that he's saying, imagine that you are self-interested, but but remember, you have no interests. <laughs> right. It's like a weird way in which like you're you supposed to You know that you will have interests and conceptions right. of the good. The defense of that is, look, I don't know what my conception of the good is, and I don't know whether I'm going to be a gambling kind of person or a risk-averse kind of person. So I'm going to set up a society that will maximize my interests, given that I could turn out to be any one of those kinds of people. Like right. a rich person, a poor person, a risk-averse person, a gambling personality, a – like the defense of that position is that there's still enough left of that thing in the original position, you know, right. whatever it, it turns out that they want, that they can get the best possible situation for themselves. The other really interesting objection to the Rawlsian original position, and it, had, it comes from a more Marxist perspective, and I attribute it to Jeffrey Murphy, who argues against the the original position specifically as a way of uh, establishing retributivism because it's also been used as saying if you're in the original position and you're presented with various institutions of punishment, the one that you would choose, not knowing whether you're going to be a serial killer kind of personality or a uh, a law-abiding citizen, the, the one you would choose is retributivism where they can't punish you if you don't make the choice to commit a crime and they can't, you know, the, that you're going to be punished based on your deserts. That's the one that you, that, that you would choose. But, but, it, but it applies the, the, the same way. The, the, the conception of the person in the original position is that they're self-interested, that they're only out for their own interests. And so it, it, it already starts out begging the question against right. certain That's communitarian the, yeah. or, or Marxist conceptions by imagining that you are an individual who is self-interested behind, even though it's stripping away every feature about you so to make right. you impartial – it's it's still giving you one it, it is giving you this one little part of your personality right. which is i want to maximize <laughs> my interests it's it's making you a homo economicus right. within the original position and that already biases. And then calling it the original position. And then calling it like pretty, as if it's it ra- pretty as, this, as if this is a universal <laughs> conception of rationality. I think that's a separate problem. Like you could disagree with the coherence issue and have that as a separate um, objection right. to the original position. But so there, so there, are, there are a few objections to this thought experiment yeah. because, yeah. So you know, you can imagine somebody saying like, and then in this original position, imagine that you are motivated to uh, to increase the egalitarian right or you're a pure altruist imagine there is, is something it? there that's just built into the so this sounds like just in ge- like i'm i don't know if any Rawlsians are listening and they're going to be up in arms about this but like it sounds like a horrible thought experiment yeah i think it might be like and <laughs> and in the worst possible way because it's Put forth by a brilliant man uh, who is very influential and deeply, I think, like a good person, it sounds like. From everything I've heard about Rawls, he was a genuinely decent person and he may have had a destructive influence on political philosophy. I mean, my my general thing, the last thing I'll say about it is, like, I think he contributed 
to political philosophy becoming and this is not i mean this is a tradition like Locke. i mean you know this all comes from conceptions of the state of nature from Locke and hobbes and so yeah. so this isn't all rawls's fault but he cemented a kind of idealized approach to political philosophy that i think has been destructive and there are certain political theorists who are you know this they're not they're called they're actually called non-ideal theorists who are fighting against it but the tide of them and let's this would be a good segue to our next segment the the appeal of these thought experiments and the abstract nature of them is such that members of academia are just automatically drawn like to a, it. There's a pull to there, it. It's like a, it's like we're doing maths, right? Yeah, like we're doing yeah. yeah. And that's actually a good transition to what I think we want to talk about uh, with psychology. So let's uh, let's come back and talk about that. Well, I I guess it's time for me now, as per our agreement. You made it. You made it. An item never before offered in this or any other country. One guaranteed live human to use in any capacity you see fit. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. I'm sure you've been waiting for this uh, as things have been getting more and more abstract. We're going to get into thought experiments and their use in, <laughs> in, in psychology. But I wanted to lead into it because one of the things that you said at the end of the last episode that I think resonated with certain people, I know it resonated with Pete Mandick because he commented on Facebook, is that all the fuss about zombies you know as a way as a as a really serious way of trying to establish dualism the fact that people even when they don't agree with it think that they have to reckon with it unlike you know somebody coming up with some new creationist argument or something like that people think okay but i do have to reckon with this argument even though i disagree with it. you know talk about something that has set the terms of a particular debate like you have to have a response to the zombie argument if you're a naturalist or a, or a materialist or whatever or a physicalist and so you suggested that maybe this was the result of a kind of a mass hysteria it's as a <laughs> It, it's it's as anti-philosophy as I think I've yeah. ever been. In, in it's my level podcast. of anti-philosophy, <laughs> and you know I think that's a sort of like an especially mean way of saying of describing a very common phenomenon. I think that is associated with thought experiments sometimes, which is that they have this potential to produce an incredible volume of literature, and then. Once that literature exists, you it, it legitimizes 
further extensions of the literature just by virtue of its own existence. Okay, well, of course I have to deal with the zombies because all these really brilliant philosophers at all these amazing institutions have dealt with it, so I have to deal with it. Right. And, uh, right. and even though a lot of people, their explicit goal is so that nobody ever has to to talk about zombies again they still, they still publish a paper called why we shouldn't talk about zombies exactly right? right so they're yeah. they're giving it respectability just by virtue of that and just builds in this moment i think thought experiments in particular have just a way of doing this because of their their sort of simplicity and their puzzle-like nature whether they're good or bad or illuminating or not illuminating there's one thing that you can say about a a, a, a type of successful thought experiment is that they have this like they're catchy. they're catchy and they it invites people who probably are a little bit towards the Asperger side of the <laughs> of, of the scale anyway to like participate in some sort of like tournament like a Sudoku Scrabble tournament or whatever you know like some kind of like puzzle tournament where you can score points and and it's like it's just alluring on that basis and then bec- and then just builds up a literature on that basis and then becomes respectable and quote unquote important on that basis and I you know that's a worry with thought experiments well you know and i think part of the worry is and, and i i should say like just just for the record i might just be too dense to understand the importance of zombies and conceivability so it could very well be well, that that's okay. another but, issue is that people think that that's like hegel oh i'm just i must not be smart enough i'm just a caveman yeah. I'm just, <laughs> your world frightens and confuses me um in defense of, of thought experiments, um, I think that oftentimes the way that they're originally formulated as a, as a sort of takedown of a general claim by offering a clear exception where everybody's intuition uh, points to some sort of incoherence in, in there. Like they, they do, I think, do a good job sometimes if they, if, if they uh, are only aiming – to offer when you're only aiming to offer a singular exception to a, a general claim then then a thought experiment can be enough no i it, but it's what the happens collateral. is they expand yeah. in, in the, they expand into being in, and this has happened with uh, any thought experiment that i can think of in, in philosophy and in, in, in psychology they they expand into something entirely different right so searle's Searle's takedown of strong AI, or his intended takedown of strong artificial intelligence, became sort of just a general way to build a theory of of metaphysics and mind, and and that and maybe even Searle took it to be that after a while, but that's not what its original purpose was. And if he had started out saying that, you know, I don't I don't know that it would have worked. Um, same thing, I think, for trolley cases, where it's like, you know, as I was saying before, like, if okay, for the person who claims that it's like consequentialism is always true, and you say, like, well, what about this organ donor case? Well, now you've given them what on the face of it appears to be a, a, a case in which they are, they have two inconsistent thoughts, like they agree with, don't do, and, they, and the, the onus is on them to explain their way. But then it becomes this, its own thing where it's like, well, clearly deontology is right because of the organ donor right. case. And that, that, I think that's a nice place to move into the particular problem with its use in psychology, which is now, okay, so the use of thought experiments, that like, and I'll stick to trolley cases and, and, and moral 
thought experiments, ethical ones. Um, now you have this goal where it's already uh, completely different for a psychologist. The psychologist now is doing something. It's not doing what the philosopher is doing by saying, like, watch, I'll point this out to you and you'll realize, everybody will realize that this is an important sort of exception or falsification or pointing out. It's actually saying, like, let's use these trolley cases or these other thought experiments to uncover the structure of the moral mind or whatever. Right. And, and it's, there's already a, a whole bunch of assumptions in there. Right. Um, and one of the big assumptions is that your responses to these thought experiments, that this reflects your general moral theory as a lay person. So whether you choose to throw the fat man or not is a measure of whether or not you're consequentialist. Right. When the whole point of those things was to say, like, for the person who is a consequentialist, now right. you tell me what would you do in this case. So it's, it's very different. Like, the, the very specific task of the thought experiment uh, now has become not only expanded for philosophers, but extra expanded for psychologists who say, like, ah, oh, this is a good measure. Let's use these and see. So it's right. So it starts out as a healthy way of showing people that their worldview is oversimplified Mm -hmm. and it turns into oversimplifying a worldview like Uh, it it turns into the exact thing that it started out doing that's a really nice way of putting it yeah yeah and and so this is so i have defended and i have used and i will use like thought experiments as a way uh, as a way to tap into people uh, to people's intuitions, but I think that, uh, and to the extent that I've ever argued that it builds a positive view of the moral mind by by sort of showing the pattern of responses, I think that I've I would have been making an error. And so to to build, and we really got to get Josh Green on here to build an entire view of what it is humans think about morality by using these. I think is. I mean, look, like there might be a way to do that, but you have to use a whole fucking lot of them and show a similar pattern across the board. And at that point, why not use real moral cases? Yeah. Right. Like you, you kind of I mean, the, cl- the cleanliness of the art that comes from the artificiality stops serving the, the right purpose. Right. And like now if you just so so here's the real simple example. If you want to know whether or not somebody has endorses sort of in general utilitarian views why not ask them whether they think that you know uh, uh, the ice bucket challenge because it because it uh, promotes at the end of the day uh, eight million dollars being raised like therefore it's okay versus and, and then and then ask them you know uh, all kinds of other questions that involve like their their actual views on what somebody ought to or ought not do. Um, there's no good reason now to just stick to the to the thought experiments for for the sake of cleanliness to refute a particular. There's two things that are going on in the world. What happened in Ferguson? The murder. Uh, well, the, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess the murder or the killing of a of a of a black man by a cop. As and this is just something that's been happening. And then all the reaction to that. And then the situation, which has some personal uh, additional personal importance to me, that's happening in Israel with Israel and Gaza. Those two situations are so unbelievably complex and right. messy and just the idea of comparing like how we approach 
problems like that with how we would approach a problem like pulling the switch and the footbridge or do right. like th- they're two completely different categories of thing right. and what you t- what i decide about the footbridge just i just i don't know if it tells me anything about how i think ferguson like what i think about ferguson right. now it may be that there is an actual like it may it may, it may be that actually people who choose to pull the switch are whatever they believe a certain thing about Israel and Gaza versus the other. Now, now you'd have to say like, okay, well, how are these connected? Like, what are right. the basic processes that that are both leading to this particular answer on the thought experiment and that particular answer? I doubt that that's the case. And so, so here's one of the the, the things uh, that one of the issues that I think we haven't tackled properly as a field. So you can say, done in the Chip Tyrone case, you could say, well, look, like it turns out that when you look across domains, people seem to be something like a utilitarian. That is like they believe that the consequences matter in this domain, like when they're talking about charity, but they seem to be deontologists in this domain. And it, it turns out that like wherever you look, people have like, they have what appears to be a very basic, rough philosophical position uh, they might be like, you know, when you ask them here, they're virtue theorists. When you ask them there, they're like deontologists. And so so the psychologists studying this stuff might say, well, that's just because reality is messy. Like what we want is these very clean thought experiments to – for what? Like to determine whether but they for truly what? are deontologists? Right. Like, how is that – like the whole promise is that this was going to tell you the structure of their moral views – and if you've now simplified it to the point that it no longer actually tells you whether they're going to be a consequential or deontologist, and I think the big error here is through all these steps, we've somehow gotten to the point where like the potential organization of the human moral mind ought to in some way resemble like the big three ethical theories. Right. Right. Like, and wait why like and wait which that should be the conclusion not the right and so when right. you when you have a thought experiment that gives you only two options one a deontological one and one a consequentialist one you cannot conclude anything but a person is either being a deontologist or being a consequentialist and so the whole point of constraining it to make it clean for philosophers who are you know having it all out about which the proper you know the ought theory that we, the normative theory is it just doesn't make sense in psychology yeah. it's like you know tossing a third option i don't think it makes sense in philosophy yeah, maybe, maybe not <laughs> maybe not but it's I, like it's yeah it's like it's, it's a whole set of assumptions that get completely discarded because people say like and we and like look we can use these cool things to like measure people and it's like wait what but how about measuring people like, Make measuring people actual people, <laughs> actual decisions, right? And, and there's a way, you know, you don't, yeah. So there might be a barrier, and this is the worry, right? That these kinds of experiments don't just argue for a particular position, but they set that they constrain the debate. They constrain and they, it, and they yeah. set the terms of the debate. And now, all of a sudden, you are now barred from a maybe a more genuine or accurate way of trying to understand moral psychology human moral psychology imagine just really quickly imagine it it, just imagine somebody saying okay i'm going to give people a schrodinger's cat example and so i'm going to see whether or not people think the cat is alive dead or both and now uh and if they say both i'll conclude people actually are 
lay endorsers of quantum Copenhagen physics. interpretation of quantum right. physics. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's like, wait, no, they're not. They're just... <laughs> I'm sure there is some psychological mechanism that's giving rise to their answer, but it cannot be that they have la- like their right. their lay. You know, I mean, this that's is right. Stacking the deck a little bit. But, this but, we really should have Josh Green on yeah, because sure. I mean, Josh is I think, well, you know, he's somebody whose career has been largely built on these, and, and he's not the only one i mean but he's one of the most well-known and he happens to be someone we both know and like so it would be important for him to object to what we're saying right now yeah well i i mean i think he's quite sober about this and i actually think that he'd probably be sympathetic to this of it and one way in which i think it's okay is that it it is one step like it is one it it is conceivably a valuable singular method to but as we said, like you would want it to be predictive, say, of other, like you would want a whole bunch of measures. And this and this will get me to I think my last this is my yeah. all of a sudden my energy levels got way up. A, a lot of people uh, who do moral psychology uh, and who started doing this kind of work actually are are reasonable about what it is that they're doing. What gets me is when like it becomes hot, like it becomes like the cool thing to do and people start using say like this happened with john Height's examples of like incest and like fucking a dead chicken where like they were supposed to show a very very specific thing They're, like isn't it funny that even when people can't generate the reason why they think something is wrong then nonetheless thing is wrong people took those john Height examples and started inserting them as, as like their dependent variables like their their measures of human morality so it'd be like we're interested in the effects of whatever like sleep deprivation on morality and so they're like let's sleep deprive people and then ask them is it right or wrong to fuck a dead chicken and it's like wait when did that become the measure of human morality that is like the most reasonable one to use like not like john height wouldn't believe that like they would it's like so they're like oh this is a cool and easy way to measure morality it's that transition that I think we both have strong objections to, but I think there are deep-rooted sociological. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like a Marxist right now in terms of like this is a self-perpetuating problem that it's we're not quite sure how to solve because the appeal of these is is in their simplicity and their ways of writing clean, doing clean research, writing a clear paper, making a clear argument, but also their pedagogical value. And I think that you can't underestimate the influence of if right. something has pedagogical value it's going to get probably more legs than it legitimately deserves relative to a, a, an equally insightful theory that doesn't that isn't fun to teach so if right. i if like whatever the masturbating the guy fucking a chicken dead chicken yeah. whatever that shows i'm teaching the dead chick the, the dead chicken thing because the students right. love it and right. same thing with the you know like i with the with the with the violinist case and that generates students and that generates further researchers and that generates and on now all of a sudden you have a canon and right. like it's very hard to step outside of the canon and just ask yourself wait a minute what are we all doing like what's right. the that's the that's the problem yeah and I, you know, I want to add um, a bit of subtlety here, too, because as you were saying, like the, the appeal to these is that they're clean 
um, simple and that they hold constant a whole variety of other things that that is an appeal so like and and i've defended this in fact on twitter um when somebody linked to the pete mcgraw article about uh, about the trolley cases in the atlantic i said well look like trolley cases are like visual illusions they're really unrealistic but but they show us something about uh, about the mind david tannenbaum tweeted tweeted back and I, I don't think i actually responded but it, it was a real key point to, to hold which is yeah so say that you're studying visual perception and you come up with the cleanest of visual stimuli like uh, you hold everything constant all you manipulate is say the color or the shape everything right. else the brightness the size everything else is held constant the reason that such simple stimuli are high like are so informative is because they uh, are shedding light on the on the mental processes or brain neural processes now but that's because we have good theories of how the the brain interprets visual information and uh, that yeah. brightness is actually like something that the the brain is encoding maybe in a separate location as they are it is it is color but it is a big assumption that these very very simple trolley cases are tracking anything deep about the mind. Right. Right? And that's a huge assumption. I think that's that's an assumption. So Josh Green has, you know, he's not willy-nilly about this. He thinks that this is actually tapping into a, a core set of emotional responses that gives rise to deontological intuitions. And I think that that, that in some ways is, is uh, correct. But it still is a huge assumption that we can make uh, in other areas of psychology but we're not yet at the point where we can say that these are actually cleanly tapping into an I, I don't think we're even yet at a point where we can say that it, it's all that plausible. Mm-hmm. Like, it's possible. It's definitely possible that it is. Right. But I don't think we have strong reason to believe that it is. But that's not how the debate is run. The debate right. is run w- as if that assumption has been fully established. Right. And, you know, now let's just... F- try to figure out the best combination of scenarios and cases to build the proper understanding of moral psychology, the best so, model. Yeah, and I have a, a deep fear that what, what happens is that excited, it's like you know somebody proposes this basic method, a basic tool, a measure for, for studying something like morality. Everybody gets excited, everybody uses it, and then you know 10 years down the road, it falls out of fashion because people are disillusioned with it. And when in reality, like all of the work of building up, like trying to use simple cases and correlate them with judgment and more complex cases, seeing if they're universal, you know, like all of that work gets set aside because it just got hot. And then people were like, no, nah, this doesn't really work. And, and yeah. that's happened. I mean, it's yeah, not like it that is. hasn't happened before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Certainly one view of psychoanalysis is <laughs> that you had this huge theory and finally someone came along and said, no, this isn't understanding this whole method is fucked and so now there aren't that you know i don't i i'm not yeah, I, no. I, I don't Actually, know much about know, the history of psychiatry but <laughs> you know i like i take it that that's how some people think of that whole right well i mean there's some there's certainly a case where behaviorism uh behaviorism got all you know at least from the mainstream people discard it they're like well you know what the fuck does rat do rats and pigeons tell us about the human mind right and so what was a a, i think a genuine objection to say 
not building a whole theory of human nature on the behavior of rats and pigeons turned into throwing out the baby with the bathwater because a lot of the work that behaviorists did is is actually quite fucking insightful and still works. Right. But people discarded it and it became sort of out of sight. I mean, this is there are plenty of people now who do those things but uh but that's i'm afraid that that's gonna happen with moral psychology if it's not already happening right like people are gonna be like eh, fuck eh, all this yeah yeah, yeah. that's who you know what uh we should do a paper on this guy because i think that about logical positivism they're right. like they totally they had so many good insights and so yeah. many they got ideas, too greedy and they got too greedy and now yeah. everybody just completely discards it Right, that's probably true about Freud too, right? Like Freud was a like there's brilliant shit that he did, but people totally dismiss psychoanalysis. It's probably true about Straussianism, or if I I uh, knew what the fuck that was. Freud was, yeah. Well, was I going to do? I mean, he didn't actually ever do science, but but yes, he probably was insightful about some stuff, like that he should have done some science. But yeah, the general point is right. So let's let's. Sorry, you just, I forgot. I forgot Freud was Jewish. I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> they were All logical right. positivists. On that, on that, really, oh, the, the logical positivists, I think, got really fucked by history. Oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like Orson. It's, they're the Orson. Wells. As did the Nazis. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just, uh, uh, on that note, repugnant. <laughs> repugnant.